If you look at all of the villains in the course of human history, they've all believed, delusionally, in the virtue of their actions. Every villain is a hero in his own mind. Tom Hiddleston. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. And we did villains back in season six. It was our bonus episode then. I think you and I were both fairly exhausted when we recorded that. And so we skipped over some pieces of the puzzle and we wanted to take today to flesh out a lot of those extra pieces because there is so much to building a villain. We could have a whole series easily on building villains. It's funny though, because as much as we do like building villains and we like talking about it, actually putting together notes on villains and what they need to be is kind of difficult because it's like, they're just villains. They just need to be bad, but awesome. And I feel like we could copy and paste the notes from the main character series in order to create the villain as well. Exactly, because you need to have that same kind of background built out. You need to have the same kind of details about their strengths and their weaknesses. All of those things that you make for a main character, you need to make for your villain. They're just different. Now, if you did attend our writing retreat last month, or if you've gone back and viewed some of the videos, you'll notice that we did cover villains in conflict during that series as well. But because that collection didn't end up on our RSS feed and didn't end up going out to Spotify or wherever you're listening from, we wanted to make sure that this information was readily available to you. So if you want more about designing conflict within your story, head to our website and you can check out the Villains in Conflict tab. But today we're talking about just villains and a lot of this content is going to be a good reminder from what we talked about during the writing retreat. So let's get into building a villain. There are three main ingredients that you need to have when building out a good villain. The first and foremost is a proper motivation, a reason for the villainy. And please don't make your character a mustache twirler, I am trying to take over the world. That only really works in satire. That doesn't work in convincing your audience to truly hate a certain character. They need to have a goal that they're working towards. That is their motivation. And power for power's sake is boring. They're just evil is bland. So there needs to be something that they're working towards that a lot of people will see as a reasonable goal but how they get there is the difference. So an example of that reasonable goal would be financial stability, world peace, these kinds of things that you ask at beauty pageants and people respond with. The shortcut is the part that starts to make them evil. Take a look at Thanos. Absolutely reasonable goal that he wanted to make sure that the universe had enough resources to sustain life. His solution was to just kill half of the people. You get rid of half of the population, that's that many more resources for those who are still alive. Instead of what a hero would do is find a way to increase the production of the resources. 
Yeah, it seems like there were a lot of less antagonistic ways to get there. But I think we can all agree that his goal was a good one, making sure that everyone who's alive can continue to thrive in peace without having to kill each other. We can also all agree that wiping out half of the universe's population might not be the best way to get there. That's what we mean when we talk about a shortcut to a good goal. That gives your villain a proper motivation moving forward. The proper motivation is always going to be tied to the next ingredient to make a good villain, and that's the realistic backstory. Whatever happened in their past is what is influencing their decisions to make the efforts to achieve their goal. So, again, with the Thanos example, his planet was destroyed because of an overpopulation problem, and the planet didn't have enough resources to sustain the people, and the people hadn't found a way to supplement the necessary resources to keep them all alive. So the whole planet was destroyed. His backstory is what put him on this path. And that backstory directly informed his shortcut, his solution to this goal. So why didn't he think to double the size of the universe without changing the population? Because overpopulation was the problem in his backstory. So that's his shortcut, his solution to a reasonable goal. Another element of that realistic backstory is that they're faced with certain choices in the backstory that we can then tie into our next ingredient, which we'll talk about in a second. Setting up these choices humanizes them because your readers and eventually your hero can see themselves in a similar situation. And you start to see how they chose the villainy because of the choices put before them when they were still good. It's not necessary, but it can be helpful to have the decisions that they had to make in the past mirror the decisions that the hero is having to make during your story. Because that allows the readers to see the kind of divergent paths that the two characters made or are making, where they were given a similar direction towards a similar goal, but the way they get there is different. Harry Potter is a really good example of this, where he and Voldemort had incredibly similar upbringings, but he made the choice before he even really knew who Voldemort was when the Sorting Cat was on his head. He said, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. He's already making choices that Voldemort didn't make, even though their circumstances are the same. And that leads us to our final ingredient. The villain needs to have a tie to the hero in some way. So on top of having that kind of parallel backstory, there needs to be a link to the hero that forces an interaction Sometimes that can be through the mentor. Sometimes that can be having the same goal, but conflicting ways to get there that are in direct opposition to each other or directly opposing goals. And it doesn't have to be just one of these things that she mentioned. I believe it was the movie Speed. They had both directly opposing goals and that historical tie because he had arrested the bad guy before. Now the bad guy has his eyes on this cop saying, here, you're the one I'm going to take out. There has to be a reason why the villain in their plans focuses their attention on the hero in some way. That direct focus 
that makes your hero viable because the villain is actually paying attention to them. The Avengers tried to stop Thanos, and so Thanos is a little more aware of who they are. That kind of puts together a new perspective on Scarlet Witch when she's like, you took everything from me. And he's like, I don't even know you. The theory is that you're actually watching it from Thanos's perspective as he's the hero of that movie. So the hero doesn't necessarily have a link to the villain, but the villain does to him. And that's a fascinating way to look at that one. Another way to tie to the hero is through the mentor character. Often, if you're getting the reluctant mentor archetype, it's because the mentor trained Anakin and Anakin turned evil, so the mentor doesn't want to train Luke now. There is that shared mentor that connects the two, but the choices of the hero makes them different from the villain before. Now let's get into the traits. So those three things, the proper motivation, the realistic backstory, and the tie to the hero, those are your key ingredients. Now let's break down the villain themselves, the psychology, the makeup of what makes a good villain. The first trait we're going to talk about is a direct reflection of that first ingredient. That shortcut to a reasonable goal means that it's very easy for your villain to believe they're the good guy. Very few villains go into their story knowing that they're the bad guy. Very few of them think, I'm doing this because I'm evil and that's fun. Of course, there are exceptions. The Joker comes to mind in that one. He's evil and he knows it and he loves it. But when you have a villain who believes they're the good guy, it's because they have usually some kind of moral code. It is not going to line up with the same thing as the good guy's moral code, but they have a code that they follow. And they also have a team of supporters. They have minions and mini-bosses that the hero has to get past in order to take down the villain. This means that there should be at least a logic to their train of thought. Because if they have supporters, other people with different backgrounds should be making the same decision. They believe it's a good thing for the Scythedom to enjoy what they do. Without this realistic believing they're the good guy and working toward a good goal, the believability in this team of supporters falls apart. It's very easy to go, why are they helping the villain? It's just for the paycheck, honestly. Which makes the heroes the villains. The true hero of every Batman film. Osha. <laughs> The next trait to include, we briefly mentioned when we were talking about their backstory, but you often want to have your villain be a dark mirror to the hero. Take, for example, the Joker and Batman. The Joker is who Batman would be if Batman didn't have his rules that he wasn't going to kill anybody. Let's be real, if Batman didn't have Alfred. Yeah, no, that's, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the better example would be Bane instead of the Joker. 
So it is that idea that your hero could be this villain if things were different. You also, in this dark mirror, need to make sure that the villain is stronger than your hero, or at the very least, just as strong, so that it is an actual struggle for your hero to defeat them. This often comes down to the choices that the supporters are making, as well as the choices that the heroes are making. So the difference between Loki and the Avengers is when Agent Coulson went down, they attacked. But it's very easy for a villain to, when they get knocked down, attack. The difference is how they got knocked down. Coulson made the choice to put his life on the line versus minion number 48 from the villains. They're doing it for the paycheck. They're doing it for something not believing in the cause, oftentimes. Probably the basis for your villain is going to be their psychology. The way that their brain works, the things that make them tick, those are gonna be your really good basis for building a realistic and good villain. If you're looking for a place to start there, there's something in psychology called the dark triad that is sociopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism. Thank you. That one. (laughs) These are three key ingredients that are found across a lot of societal villains, psychologically speaking. We plan on talking more about that in October as we're talking about psychology of dark things that are happening, but the dark triad is going to be your research tangent there. Psychopathy and sociopathy are slightly different. In my understanding, it's that the psychopath is born that way, the sociopath is kind of made that way, and the sociopath doesn't feel most emotions. Psychopath mostly doesn't feel empathy and guilt. Not feeling empathy is kind of across the board with these three pieces. I think that's really prevalent with the narcissism, that lack of empathy, because the narcissism is very much the focus on what other people can do for me and making sure that other people are doing things in ways that I approve and want them. And it's a very self-centered view of the world. And that ties very closely to Machiavellianism, which is kind of that puppeteer villain where they will manipulate and make people dance. It's the Iago from Othello. All of these things combined create a very self-centered, lacking empathy, puppeteer villain that is just chef's kiss. Another thing to keep in mind as you're going through this disturbedness is, especially with the narcissist, it's very easy to lean into the victim mentality of, I was wronged by the Avengers, I was wronged by Odin, I was wronged by Dumbledore, therefore I'm just making things right. I'm getting what I deserve because other people do terrible things, so it's my turn to be recognized for my true glory. Scar is a great example in The Lion King. He has this, I should have been, and the world owes me mentality. And that goes right in with this not seeing the world exactly as it truly is, but instead that narcissistic, the world should revolve around me. I've earned it. 
they're the kinds of people that change the facts to fit their worldview. Another trait to keep in mind as you're creating this villain is to please, please, please make them likable in some way. Not just sympathetic, not pathetic, but likable. My favorite ways is the sense of humor. Like, I have a dark sense of humor anyway, so it's very easy to make someone likable if they're making you laugh. This is something you can lean into in order to make the villain a good villain. And I think there's a little bit of a differentiation between liking the villain and liking the villain. I know that sounds the same. (laughs) You can like a villain character and still recognize them as being pure evil. Just look at how many people like the Joker, despite the fact that the Joker is a crazy mass murderer. We can like the character for who they are without rooting for them and wanting them to be the victors in the end. So when you are creating a villain and you want people to like them as a character, as a villain, there are ways to do that. Give them that nice, dark, twisted sense of humor. I love villains with a good, dark sense of humor. And the other thing is make them human. They're probably human, depending on your type of story. But if you make them human in some kind of way, there's a little bit of ability to see that connection. It's not necessarily sympathizing with the villain, but seeing where they come from. Do me a favor and think of your top five favorite Disney characters. How many of them are the Disney princess, the hero? One. And how many are the villain? Three. There you go. People like the villains. And maybe it's just you and me because we both have dark sense of humor. But we enjoy relishing in the villainism because of this vicarious pleasure that comes with, yes, I would really like to just deck that Karen at work. I would love to be able to curse somebody's child because they didn't invite me to a party. Let's be real. You weren't going to go to the party anyway. (laughs) Exactly. But an invitation would have been nice. Like Maleficent probably wouldn't have shown up if she'd just gotten an invitation. But no, they had to slight her, invite three dumb fairies that are just ridiculous, and get scared when she shows up. And it's like, oh dear. He had it coming. (laughs) So enjoy when you're writing your villain, especially if they're this one single human character that we can relate to. We can understand, not necessarily that we would make the same choices, but that we get where they're coming from. There's another kind of villain we're going to touch on briefly, and that's the collective villain. That's mostly the robots, zombies, Resident Evil type character. If you have a group, you need to make them unsympathetic because most of the time they're going to be taken out in droves. You're going to kill a bunch of zombies. You're going to dismantle a bunch of robots. You're going to murder the cultists that are trying to raise Cthulhu. Your readers don't want to sympathize with those people because they're going to get killed very quickly. The first time I noticed this in film was the film Prince Caspian. 
all of the Telmarines had things that covered their faces. You make them less human by covering up their face, especially the bottom half of their face. You see just their eyes. It starts to look more creature, monster in the woods, hunting people instead of human. The good guys, even though they're animals, they're more relatable because we can see their faces. Maybe the true villain, we can see their face. They stand out from the crowd. But for the most part, making them less human and more the same all the way across the board. Everyone's in the same uniform, blah, blah, blah makes your reader less likely to root for them because we're not seeing them as the guy trying to make his mortgage. We're seeing them as this unstoppable force that the hero has to conquer. We're seeing them as a single massive unit. So you've got your key ingredients. You've got an idea of the traits. Now, how do you go about actually building a villain and creating one? This can often be the difficult part because it's the translation of a concept or an idea of this villain and making them feel realistic and an actual character in your story. So one of the best ways to make sure you're communicating well to your audience as you're writing it down is to base it on a real villain of some kind. We see a lot of parallels between the forces of Mordor and the German empires in World War I and World War II. History is a very good place to look for villains. I recently started writing a story and I'm basing my villain off of a kind of urban legend of Springheel Jack and combining it with a couple elements of Jack the Ripper. If you need to have a serial killer as your bad guy, look into serial killers. Listen to podcasts or read books to learn about their psychology, their process, what they did, and that will give you a place to start. Now, unless you are writing a true crime and basing it off of something very specific, you don't want to copy-paste Ted Bundy into your story because it's just going to be Ted Bundy. But you can use some of his elements, some of his psychology, the charisma that he had that swayed so many people into basically worshipping him even after he'd been arrested and was on trial for murdering multiple women. Use that to help create a character for your story. Another thing to keep in mind as you're starting to design the villain, make sure you give that villain a history. Not just a backstory, but some points in their life where they weren't a villain, where they were trying to do the right thing before they decided that shortcut is a better option. Let us see that descent in their villainy. And oftentimes the villains don't start doing bad things at the start of your book. They started maybe a little bit before. Again, with the example of a serial killer. If you have a serial killer that's starting to murder they probably did other crimes first. Depending on their motivations, it probably has something to do with animals or with fire. Or they have a history of stalking and prowling. A Golden State Killer started out with breaking into homes and burglarizing them before he ever got to the point of murdering people. Once you kind of give your villain a history of villainy, you need to make him a worthy challenger. 
According to Hitchcock, a lame villain equals a lame story. And I 100% agree with that. If your villain is no good, your story is no good. This is the primary reason that I, as a Christian, don't read Christian fiction. There's a level of being gun-shy with most villains that I see in Christian writing that you don't necessarily see in secular writing. And some people, especially their target audience, really prefer that. I'm not that person. But I want to see a true villain, and I cannot root for the hero if the villain is lame. And in order to write a true villain, you need to let yourself enjoy it. Really kind of embrace the dark side of you when you're writing this character. Don't be gun-shy about murdering people in your books. It's a story. You're not actually going out and stabbing somebody. My family still hasn't forgiven me for killing a dog within the first couple chapters of one of my first books. I mentioned that, hey, I'm going to be releasing this other book, and I've been talking especially with my brother about the magic system being related to emotional discipline and this and that. And he's like, well, it sounds like something I would read. You aren't killing any dogs, right? <laughs> like, No, no dead dogs. My family still judges me for my villainy. But the rest of the world won't. And that's the thing, is if you are worried about if your readers or your loved ones or people around you that read the book, if you're worried about what they're going to think, don't. Because 99% of the time, they aren't judging you for what you write. They aren't going to be disappointed in you because you included a lot of murder. My mom got a little not happy with me when I included a lot of alcohol in my story. But she never said it, and she still was very supportive about my book releases, and that's what really mattered. And in the grand scheme of things, your mom is one reader. You'll have so many more readers than that, and each one of them's going to have a, well, I would do this differently. You'll probably hear more from your family because you exist near them, and family is always a little bit more vocal, I think, in general. True. But especially that first draft, make sure you are writing that villain for you. Make sure you are enjoying the villain. You have my permission and have anyone who disagrees with me email me so I can just duke it out. Enjoy that villain because if you judge them, then you can't make them a good villain. If you hold back in what they're willing to do, then your hero's not going to have a challenge that they need to defeat. Because that's really the challenge of the hero, is that the villain doesn't have the limitations that they've placed on themselves. The villain doesn't care if people get killed along the way. The hero does. That makes the difference. That is what the hero has to get over. If you aren't allowing your villain to be villainous then your hero's never going to be as good as they should be. And I feel like readers are going to judge somebody. They might as well be judging the villain because then they're standing alongside the hero. If the villain is too understandable or not villainous enough, your readers are starting to judge the hero. So if you start getting feedback from your betas going, well, why didn't the hero do this? Why didn't the hero do that? They're not paying enough attention to your villain. The villain is not evil enough. 
The next thing to take into consideration when writing your villain is that you need to write them the same way that you write the rest of the characters. Don't make them overly flowery. Don't make them overly simplistic. The dialogue should be similar. Their systems should be similar. They're just willing to go a little further, you know, sacrificing a few more lives in order to get what they want. Their choices are what make them the villain. If you start writing the villain to be unintelligent or this or that, make sure that's like an intentional choice by you, the author, because it's very difficult to see them as a villain if you make them too different from the rest of the writing style of your book. And if you do it in the wrong way, it feels like you're trying to villainize very specific kinds of people. And that's just not a good thing. You want to avoid that. Part of the letting yourself enjoy writing that villain comes down to what their plan is. It drives me batty when I'm reading a book or watching a movie and the villain has no real plan besides twirling their mustache and like cackling in the back room. What is their goal? They are working towards something the same way your hero is working towards something. Lex Luthor is trying to take over the world. Superman has to stop him, but Lex Luthor has a plan. Thinking through those plans makes the story feel real. It gives literal challenges to both sides of the coin as you're moving forward. And the final thing I want to talk about with your villains when you're building and creating them is don't be afraid to make them a minority. I know there's a little bit of kind of gun shyness when it comes to making your villain a female or a person of color or some other minority group because there's always that hesitation that you are using that character in order to villainize that minority group. How you fix this is, yes, make your villain a woman, but also make sure that one of your main heroes is a woman as well. Not just the love interest. They need to play a key protagonist role in fighting off so that they can have that kind of counterbalance. I recently finished reading a book where the villain was female and the only other female in the story was super lame. They were trying to make her cool because she would go into combat, but she would like cry after combat. And I think they were trying to make it sympathetic. And she had this, no man can control me except for my fiance, because that's the way they do things. And like, I was cheering when the fiance died. It was bad. Anyway, of the two females in the story, one was lame and the other was the villain. You can guess which one I was rooting for. Contrast that with the book I'm reading right now, where the villain is female and part of the fey world and gorgeous, but very evil, that Machiavellianism we were talking about before, of just pulling the strings in order to win the soul of the hero. And the female cop that is helping him is totally kick butt. And we love her. And we see as many females as males pop up in the story. But... The way they treat the good guy females makes the bad guy females feel realistic and lets us hate them or love them because of their choices, not because of their skin color or gender or whatever. 
For a good example of what not to do, look into the book We All Fall Down by Rose Sabo. There was a very big controversy over the use of minorities as her villains, I think in this one and in her other one, What Big Teeth, and how it kind of promotes white women inflicting violence on a gay black man. There's a very, very outspoken controversy about these particular books. If you want to look into how to not do it, look into We All Fall Down, just as a a side there. And I feel like Sandman did a good job of making the villains be more complex than the CIS white guy. Yeah, I really enjoyed Sandman. Desire is represented as trans or drag they them character but it's done in a way so that the gender identity of this character is not the villainous part because we get other characters in there that are also not cis white men you have this wide variety of people of body types and some are good and some are bad it's not specific to how they look but instead based on their choices. And that's really what it comes down to, is making sure that the choices that your villains make are what makes them the villain. We've said that repeatedly throughout this episode. The shortcuts that they make, the types of things that they take joy in, the things that they do that are different from the hero, that betrayed the mentor, all of these things that we've talked about, come down to the choices that they make. That's how you vilify somebody. That's how you make a cool villain. That's how you make a villain people will remember. And like what we mentioned before, in order to do this, that means you need to kind of embrace the villainy inside yourself. Let yourself be free on the paper and write what you need to in order to make a good villain, in order to make a good story, because a good villain equals a good story. Well, kind of. It's at least half of what makes a good story is making sure you have a good villain. I would much rather see a good villain and a lame hero than a lame villain and a good hero. Exactly. So embrace the villainy and go right selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 